My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. The ladies from Reach for Recovery said, "Well, this is just a sample of the prosthesis you'll get. The real one is going to feel much more like a real breast." And that's when she said no. That's when she said no. Welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. In September 1978, when she was 44 years old, the renowned poet Audre Lorde went into the hospital for a breast biopsy. She woke up in the recovery room, hurting and horrified. I have cancer, she wrote in her landmark book, The Cancer Journals. I'm a black lesbian feminist poet. Where are the models for what I'm supposed to be in this situation? Lord became her own model. After her mastectomy, she chose never to hide the fact of her missing breast. Lord died in 1992 when she was 58. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the publication of the Cancer Journals, and Penguin Classics has just come out with a new version of the book. In her foreword to the new edition, the former poet laureate Tracy K. Smith writes that the book bears witness to Lord's radical re-envisioning of self, body, and society. I spoke recently with Lord's daughter, Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins. She's an OBGYN at the Ezra Hoylem Health Center in Monroe, New York, and she's studying acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in New York City. Elizabeth Lord Rollins, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your mother, who I would venture to say was one in a million. Mm, Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. In fact, actually, let me just ask you this right off the bat. If you had one word to describe her, what would that word be? Powerful. And that came to mind like right away, no question. Yeah, pretty much. So I'd like to uh, start by asking you to read a poem of your choosing written by your mother. And why don't you introduce us to the poem, give us a little bit of context, and then go ahead. Both my brother and I would go hear our mother read uh, poetry. And I remember being very intimidated as a five or six-year-old. Because it was your mother and she was the big person in your life or because you were worried you wouldn't understand it? I identified her intensity as anger and remember thinking, you know, did I do something wrong? Or or, are we going to be in trouble when we get home? (laughs) (laughs) Now I know, okay, this is kind of before you begin to understand that there are events that happen outside of yourself that have nothing to do with you and you do not cause them. So I wonder if an adult had kind of said, hey, this is, you know, this is mommy reading. If I even would have sort of got that as as an adult, I read these poems and I, I see some of the other things in them, the fear for us, the uncertainty about what kind of world we'll be inhabiting as as a parent an emotion that I share. And, and at the end of this poem, what my child learns of the sea, uh, sort of an uneasy certainty that despite your best efforts, you're going to do some things wrong. 
and uh, and your child's going to have to work them out. <laughs> and, and whether he or she works them out with you or without you, you know, has yet to be seen. But no matter what your best efforts are, you will certainly screw up. <laughs> yeah. So, so please jump right in. <laughs> this, this is what my child learns of the sea. What my child learns of the sea, of the summer thunder, of the bewildering riddle that hides at the vortex of spring. She will learn in my twilight and childlike revise every autumn. What my child learns as her winters fall out of time, ripened in my own body, to enter her eyes with first light. This is why, more than blood or the milk I have given, one day a strange girl will step to the back of a mirror, cutting my ropes of sea and thunder and sun. Of the way she will taste her autumns, toast brittle or warmer than sleep, and the words she will use for winter, I stand already condemned. You know, what I want to tell you, first of all, is that you have an absolutely beautiful poetry reading voice. And I remember when I was a kid, I would listen to records, scratchy old records of Robert Frost and Robert Lowell. And and I have to say, you sound just like them. <laughs> It's the sing-songy quality of it. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the savoring every word and every syllable quality of it. Is this something you've practiced? You know, I have not practiced this ever. And the first time I was asked to read a poem of my mom's, um, I guess it was maybe a few months after she had passed away, and everybody in the room was just silent for a long time. And I, it's really not conscious. I can't read her work any other way because I, it was years of hearing her read. So before I even knew, I mean, I didn't really have an appreciation for who my mother was in the world until I was about 16. That's a whole nother story. But we were going to poetry readings as little children. So I can't really read it any other way. But, you know, it's interesting um, because... You know, our mother loved words, just loved words and adored poetry. And she'd read us poetry all the time. Shel Silverstein and uh, Emily Dickinson and Phyllis Wheatley. I remember, you know, she had a poem for every occasion. I remember coming home crying about my math homework one day. I think I was in fifth grade and she ran to the bookcase and drug out this volume and, and read me Euclid Alone Has Looked on Beauty Bear, which is a poem about math. So let's let's jump into her life. And I just want to say that the, the reissue of the Cancer Journals, um, it's the 40th anniversary, is that right, of the publication of the book? Yeah, I believe. Uh-huh. And what a wonderful excuse we now have to talk about it all over again, and it's absolutely no less relevant, just saying, (laughs) 
than it was 40 years ago. Yeah. And uh, this is a really nice excuse to relive with you your the story of your mother. And let's start with when she was born, where she was born, who her parents were. Well, my, my mom was born in 1934, February 18th, in New York City. She was the youngest of three girls and born to uh, my grandmother and grandfather. Uh, my grandmother... Linda Belmar Lord, who was originally from Grenada, and my grandfather, Frederick Byron Lord, who was originally from Barbados. And uh, they had met in Grenada when my grandfather, who was a constable at the time, uh, came to the general store where my grandmother was working because in those days, the constables would come to the general stores and make sure that the proprietors were doing weights and measures correctly and not cheating their customers. So that's how they met. And within, I think, a year, a year and a half, moved to New York City to follow Linda's two older sisters. They actually moved to Manhattan. You know, there is a, a fair amount of colorism uh, for lack of a better word, that, you know, happens in the Caribbean. My grandmother was a very light-skinned woman, lighter than I am. Her father had been a Scottish sailor, and she actually passed for white when they first came to New York City because my grandfather, who was darker, literally could not get a job, uh, even though he was highly skilled in a bunch of fields. And my grandmother got a job at the Waldorf Astoria passing for white. Um, with her Caribbean accent, they thought she was English. And she was fired because she got pneumonia uh, one winter. And my grandfather went to the job to pick up her check. And when they saw my grandfather, they realized that she must be something other than English and white, as they had assumed, and told my grandfather, tell your wife, don't come back to work. And by this time, you know, it was full-blown depression, um, right? By this time, it was the mid-1930s, and New York, like the rest of the country, was really gripped in depression. My grandmother took in wash independently uh, at that point. My mother has written about how she would see her mother doing the wash and how her mother's hands would just have chillblains all over them from doing the wash all day and then taking it out in the winter, you know, wet and delivering it to places and, and just how cold her hands would get. And my grandfather did odd jobs and uh, really catch his catch can um, until World War II started. So things were bad and... Um, my mother was the darkest of the three girls, and my mother was closer to my grandfather's coloring, and also uh, her hair quality was much more like my grandfather's. So some of the early battles in my mother's family of origin was her asserting herself that she was not going to have the hot comb. She was not going to undergo, you know, all the chemicals and so forth to get her hair straightened. Um, and th these battles happened at a fairly young age. And one of the major ones, my mother was only in the sixth grade and, uh, and she'd get beaten with a brush. My grandmother, there was no way she could go to school, leave the house with that afro 
And way before her time, I mean, we're talking, let's see, my mother was 13, so we're talking it was 1947. Oh, wow, that is very early. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So she, she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. She had a sense of self from the get-go, it sounds like. Yes. My grandfather, and I think my grandmother, too, always had this dream that all three of their girls would go to college. And they had not, I take it, they had not had a college education? No one in the family at this point had had a college education. So what was behind the dream of an education for their girls? You know, I guess the same dream that had moved them to come from the Caribbean to the States in the first place, which was that, you know, there would be a a better life, a, a changing of the family fortunes, Um, that their descendants would no longer be dependent on getting jobs from the man, (laughs) for lack of a better term. I don't necessarily think that my grandmother and grandfather conceived of it in that fashion. They certainly were not as radical in their political outlook as, as my mother ended up being, you know, but they were immigrants, with the kind of upwardly mobile dreams for their children that most folks who emigrate to the States have, no matter what their ethnicity. Right. It's it's an absolutely incredible sort of thread that runs through the entire uh, podcast series. However you want to put it, like the American dream or the dream of an education or education as, as furthering your chances. Did all three of their daughters get to go to college? Yes, they did. My mother went to college, uh, graduated from Hunter College, and then went to Columbia and got a graduate degree in library science. And then tell me about the transition from that to full-time poet. Well, as a child, I wasn't really too aware of when my mother would write. I found out as an adult through conversations with Blanche Cook and uh, and Francis Clayton that my mom would write midnight to two o'clock in the morning, usually, at the kitchen table. You know, there is this uh, quote that talent does what it can and genius does what it must. And I think my mother was in the genius category. I mean, she needed poetry like all of us need air. And so whether she was going to write or not was never in question. But what happened with those poems was, you know, something else entirely. In 1968, in the summer of 1968, she was invited to Tugaloo. And that was a real watershed moment, I think, for her to teach poetry and to pass some of that love of words and and the power of poetry to pass that on. And it's such a time as the summer of 1968. I mean, and in Tougaloo, Mississippi, of all places, I think that it just changed her trajectory. It made her see her work and her light in a different space. So a lot of the information that I'm imparting to you is how it looked to a small child, and then as a teenager growing up, kind of seeing, oh, how these events really did change the way my mother saw her work. Well, let's, let, that's, a, that's a nice transition to this uh, incident when you were 16, and I call it that how you met your mother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me what happened. Well, up until the time I was 16, Jonathan and I had 
gone to poetry readings in junior high school. I think both of us were aware that her work was becoming more celebrated. I remember um, having a family meeting at one point and, and both my brother and I rounding on our mother and Francis and saying, you know, you guys think you're so cool, but you're just like all the other parents, you know, it's like chores and have the dishes been done and, you know, you're going to get docked your allowance because the garbage cans weren't taken out in a timely fashion. And the two of them looked at each other and just laughed (laughs) because I think to be accused of being average suburban parents was really on some level something that they wished the rest of the world could see. Right. Uh, certainly when they went to PTA meetings, the last thing anybody else in the room was thinking was they were just like all the other parents. And here were their, you know, uh, tween kids just sort of saying, yeah, you guys think you're so cool, you're hopelessly square. I love that. But, you know, as mm-hmm. things go on, you know, we certainly my mother and I had our differences and our frictions, and it really reached ahead the year that I was 15 and then 16, it only got worse. And during that year of high school, I guess it was in the early spring when um, my mom said to me, look, you and I are not going to survive a summer in this house together. And I'm not going anywhere. So I'm sending you to Diane's house for the summer. And Diane was Diane DePrima, who had, I believe it was in the early 1970s that she'd sort of picked up and relocated to San Francisco. So I went out to San Francisco for the summer and uh, stayed there for um, six weeks or so. It was during that time, and really only in the first week or so that I was with Diane, it was the summer of 1979, I was looking for something to read, and um, the entire length of the hallway was bookcases. I was traveling down the hallway, and, and I just saw my mother's book out of nowhere. So I picked it up, I grabbed it, I think it was Cables to Rage, if memory serves, um, Cables to Rage has a picture of my mother in a black lambskin coat uh, and these 1960s uh, butterfly black rimmed glasses. And she's sort of looking very stern. And I just grabbed that book and started reading it. It really gave me a look at my mother as Audre Lorde, the poet. She'd always been mom and only mom, and mom who writes poetry, and mom who goes on trips, and how come she's gone so long. But there had really been no digestion of Audre Lorde the Poet on my part up until reading those books at Diane's. And maybe it was the space of being away from my mom for six weeks that made it possible. So when you were reading Cables to Rage, does that mean cables as in telegrams to rage, or is that what it is? The, you the know, word? good question. I mean, it could be cables as in telegrams. I always thought it was cables like electrical wire cables. Mm-hmm. Cables to rage, conduit, conduit mm-hmm. to rage. I see. Yeah, interesting. Speaking of which, I mean, I read somewhere that uh, Audre Lorde is, she owns anger the way Monet owns the the lily pad. And I can imagine that when you were little, it was scary. 
because you thought you had done something. And then when you were a teenager and you read Cables to Rage, it was just probably epiphanous. There was something about the separation of reading her work in a book as opposed to hearing her read that really allowed me to see my mother is not belonging to me as belonging to the world in a way that I had never really appreciated before. How old were you when she was first diagnosed with cancer? Uh, 15. Mm. And how did she share the news with you? Well, she had had a scare the year before. Both she and Francis thought in 1978 that the lump she felt was cancer. And she underwent a biopsy at that time. And the news was, oh, you don't have cancer. And it was only a year after that that she felt another lump and went into the surgery, not knowing whether they were going to find it was cancer or not. And when she woke up, she had a radical mastectomy. This was before the days of needle-guided biopsies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in many cases, you'd go into the operation not really knowing what the operation was going to be when you woke up. My brother and I were both starting at Stuyvesant High School, which was right across the street from Beth Israel. We made an arrangement that at 10 o'clock in the morning every day, when I was in a classroom that faced her hospital window, she'd go to the window and I'd go to the window and we'd wave. So a bunch of my classmates said, what are you doing every day at 10 o'clock? And I said, oh, my mom's in the hospital across the street. So one day they all went to the window and started waving, which was really... Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now we skipped over a little bit. You've mentioned Francis, but so Francis was your mom's partner after she and your dad divorced? There was a little bit of an overlap there. My mom and dad both knew they were gay when they got married. They loved each other, but they both knew they were gay. Did they know they were gay and they wanted to have kids? And how did that work? Well, my mother definitely wanted to have kids. I think he wanted to have kids too, but mostly he wanted to marry her. She would have been fine with having kids without getting married, but he insisted on getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a role reversal, what <laughs> male, female, from the stories you usually hear. Right. But, you know, I think that my dad had relationships with men, but they were more transitory. His heart always belonged to our mom. I mean, on his deathbed, he was in his 80s. He was calling her name. So, I mean, and they divorced in the early 1970s. Um, They separated in 1970. I I don't think the divorce was final until 1975, but um, you get the idea. I mean, even though he went on to have other loving relationships, both with men and women, at the end of his life, that was the one that got away for him. Wow. So she, your mom, had a powerful effect on people. It sounds like. Oh, uh, yeah. Frances Clayton was also, I, I mean, I don't even have words for Frances. She was, her decency and anti-racism is also something that was way ahead of its time. Frances and my mom fell in love 
when my mother was teaching at Tougaloo and Francis was teaching at Tougaloo as well. Mm -hmm. And it was 1968. Francis was toe-headed blonde, (laughs) blue-eyed, very Nordic-looking, and they met at Tougaloo and fell in love. Getting back to your mom's diagnosis, her surgery, and then several years later, I get uh, she had a liver metastasis. Is that what happened? Correct. But then she lived for so many years after that. Yeah. And the cancer journals, when did she start writing it? The journals that end up in the cancer journals proper begin with that first surgery, the radical mastectomy, the rehabilitation from that, the visits from the ladies from Reach for Recovery who talk about getting back to normal and and said, well, this is just a a sample of the prosthesis you'll get. The real one is going to feel much more like a real breast. And that's when she said no. Yeah, that's when she said no. And there was the physical fact of losing her breast and the loss in the morning that went with that. When our mom came home, we had a family meeting about how things were going to be a little different. And my brother and I had you know, we were taught how to cook. We were responsible for uh, one family meal each per week, even as kids growing up. But our mom said, you know, I will drive you to the grocery store, but you and your brother are going to do the grocery shopping. You're going to bring in the food. You're going to pack it away. You know, there's a certain amount of quotidian activity that I just don't have time for. And you guys are capable of doing it. And this is going to be part of your new responsibilities. I don't remember whether she explicitly stated this, but I was aware that it had to do with this feeling that she didn't have a lot of time necessarily, or maybe she did have a lot of time, but it wasn't going to be spent going to the A&P. Got it. Different priorities. I wanted to read something to you that uh, Mario Cuomo said about her when he Um, named her Poet Laureate of New York in 1991, he said her imagination is charged by a sharp sense of racial injustice and cruelty, of sexual prejudice. She cries out against it as the voice of indignant humanity. Audre Lorde is the voice of the eloquent outsider who speaks in a language that can reach and touch people everywhere. Do you remember that when, when you must remember that when he said that and when this all happened, when she became Poet Laureate of New York? I do. I do remember that day vividly. Thank you for reading that quote by Mario Cuomo. He is also an impressive figure for, you know, how differently he approached the political job in, in my uh, in my opinion. And those words, to me, couldn't say it clearer, not just what they mean about my mother, but what they mean about him, that he saw that. Right. Because, you know, it's absolutely true. And from a young age, she was the outsider with maybe an eloquence that she didn't feel free to express. She didn't speak her first words until she was five. Because of this outsider thing, she knew better than to speak. I hope you don't mind if I turn to what I can I I believe is probably the most memorable uh, I guess you'd call it a declaration of hers 
the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. How do you read that? It's been read and interpreted so many different ways. I think it's pretty clear, actually. I think that my mother, again, sort of ahead of her time, had a recognition that although we may work within the confines of the system as we know it, true and lasting change sometimes has to come outside the parameters of those systems. I also think that within the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house is a warning, uh, a warning that we're living through. I mean, I'm, I'm a proud American and I haven't lived really for any length of time in other countries. So I can't comment upon whether America is the greatest country in the world. I do know that it feels like 1934 in Germany right now. We've been in a constitutional crisis since the inception of the Constitution in this country. It's just that large segments of the population have had the luxury of not having to recognize that. And I think that's what the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house speaks to. What do you think your mom would say about what's going on right now? It's about time. That's what she'd say about the protests. And with regard to Mr. Trump and his band, because it's not, you know, of course, it's not just Mr. Trump. She'd say, yes, these people have existed and been allowed to flourish. And where have the rest of y'all been? What would you say her legacy is? Wow. I see her legacy every day because I, I work with patients. And every patient who comes into my office and slams a copy of Hysterectomy No More down on my desk and says, Doctor, have you read this? Um, I see her legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see her legacy in every woman I see who takes her health into her own hands. I see her legacy in the young people who are out in the streets. All right. So my last question, finally, I promise, (laughs) is that as you were reading the poem, I was thinking to myself that just there are so many wonderful lines in it. But I thought to myself, did Elizabeth and her brother see this? It was just like their guide for life. Have you tried to live that way? One of the most salient lines is... If you do not learn to hate, you will never be lonely enough to love easily. And I believe that characterizes me. I don't pretend to be the warrior my mother was. My ways are very different from hers. You know, when I see people protesting, you know, out on the streets, this rally that I went to in Brooklyn, which was a beautiful and peaceful gathering, but characterized by complete outrage, and rightfully so. And say their names is not just a rallying cry. It goes to the very heart of really each and every one of us. And that that is her legacy, too. The killing of unarmed people of color was going on before my mother was born and continued after she died. But the very vocal expression of our outrage, as well as the promise that we may live to see a day when it's different, I see that as part of her legacy. And this very last line that you 
that you read. Speak proudly to your children wherever you may find them. Tell them you are offspring of slaves and your mother was a princess in darkness. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for spending all this time talking to me about your really incredible mother. And congratulations on the republication of of the book. I'm thrilled. It's a beautiful volume. Um, I've seen it and it's just, my mother would have loved it. So my thanks go to Penguin and, and really my thanks go to you. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. You probably already know that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What you might not know is that 40 years after the Cancer Journals was first published, Black women still have the highest breast cancer death rate of all racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., and they're 42% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women are. This is just plain wrong, and it needs to be redressed. To coincide with its literary tribute to Audre Lorde, Penguin Random House has pledged its support to Black Women's Health Imperative, an organization that supports health and wellness initiatives for Black women. We hope you'll support BWHI, too, by going to bwhi.org donate. Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Rosie Manick is our intern. And the show's producer is Alice Hudson. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredek Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone. Everyone.